Hello, today we are looking at Revelation chapter 13, the two beasts 666. Uh, we're going to be looking at context from the rest of the Bible and also from the culture of the time. So I really hope that this episode helps you to interpret this passage. Um, my cat's here as well, so we might get some input from her. We'll see. Hey, Amber. <laughs> okay, let's get on with today's episode revelation chapter 13. my name is megan and here i talk about the bible i spend some time reading the commentaries and studying passages and then chat through here about what i've learned so you can learn that info on the go doing your cleaning while you work and i really hope this just feels like grabbing a coffee with me and doing a deep dive into scripture together let's get on with today's episode Okay, so chapter 13. We're not doing too bad, are we? We're getting there. I think we might reach the end by the end of this year. It only took like two years, but we're, <laughs> we're getting there. And I think when you go in this much depth at every passage, this is what happens. But that's okay. That's okay. Um, I'm also writing a Bible study called Approaching Revelation, and it's designed to be in a home group setting but you can also do it on your own if you would like that's going to be out next week on my website as a free downloadable pdf um, you can print it out and it's got like space for notes it's got activities and that is a six session series so it's much more of an overview than this podcast is you'll recognize some of the information um from this podcast series if you've been following along but if you want to do this with some friends kind of look at the genre context audience and some of the key themes in revelation that's what that series does i've managed to try it out with a couple of groups and it's been really really good fun so that's going to be out next week and i'm really excited about it so if you're looking for a quicker series on revelation um that six week or six session series will be available next week it's in the final stages of proofreading and i can't wait to get it out to you all but today we are taking a deep dive into revelation 13 there's three kind of key points i want to pull on today but first let's read the passage this is the esv translation and i saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that Satan, remember from the last passage? Dragon and Satan. The dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There have been countless predictions and ideas and suggestions of who the beast is, um, who this number, who this name belongs to, what does that mean, um, and you can, you can find all that on the internet. The internet's a wonderful place for finding things like that. Um, but today, I'm, I'm not going to look at that because... I want to do what we've been doing this whole series. I want to just start by actually looking at the text and actually considering the themes and um, and ideas that, that, that this passage is trying to give us because it's that very descriptive language that comes from that apocalyptic genre, as you've already said. So before we even think about application, let's just start spending some time in this passage and considering what is trying to be said with this very, very particular use of imagery. The first element I want to look at is what I'm going to call anti-kingdom imagery. Anti-kingdom imagery. I've made this term up, <laughs> but I feel like it's helpful because if we read through this passage, what we see is kind of um, imagery that we associate with Jesus or with God or with the kingdom of God that is being twisted to suit this kingdom which is the kingdom of satan at the end of the last passage we saw the dragon standing on the sand of the sea on the edge of the sea he's sort of standing there he's looking out and then we see this beast rise out of the sea and we are told that it is the dragon satan that's given authority to this beast now there's a lot of old testament imagery going on here which we'll, we'll move on to in a minute to do with with kingdoms and rulers so we know this is talking about kingdom and we can see that just from just from reading through in the way that people then worship and serve the the two beasts and and therefore the dragon as well this is satan's kingdom he's trying to twist the kingdom of god 
and make it his own. And this is what Satan does, isn't it? He takes God's good creation um, and he twists it. He wants to be the ruler of it, but he wants to to rule it in this way that it's just it's just evil, isn't it? It's just sinful and evil, and he just twists what is good to turn it into lies. And that's what we see in this passage, and we see it in the imagery. For example, the crowns that the beast is wearing, these are diadems. Okay, there's different types of crowns in Revelation. There are um, like wreaths, sort of crowns that are given to athletes that win things. And that's the kind of crown that believers receive when they have been faithful. They've kept going on the race, they receive a crown. And that kind of crown, the Greek word means like a, a wreath someone would win at the Olympics or something like this, a victor's crown. This crown here, a diadem, is one reserved for royalty. And at the end of Revelation, we see that Jesus is the one wearing a diadem because he's the true king. He is the true king. But here, the beast is trying to rip off Jesus by posing as a king, by wearing royal diadems. Not only that, but the beast is injured and it's healed itself. A mortal wound that has been healed. It's a ripoff of the crucifixion. It's a ripoff again of Jesus. It's trying to imitate Jesus, twist it. It's actually an evil um, satanic ruler, this beast. All its authority is from Satan. It's, it's trying to twist Jesus. Um, Jesus has the, the wounds on his hands from the crucifixion. Um, and he appears to his disciples after he's resurrected, doesn't he? And like Thomas looks at the wounds on his hands. And here the beast is trying to kind of do the same thing. It's like, oh, look, I had a mortal wound, but I've healed it. It's healed. Satan's just trying to take the truth of who Jesus is and make a cheap imitation, a copy to deceive people. And it works. People worship this beast and they worship Satan. All that idolatry that we've heard about in the Old Testament about making images, um, it, it's all directed at the beasts and at Satan. Their worship is being taken away from God, the true king. It says here in verse... Um, Verse four, doesn't it? They, they're worshipping the beast and saying, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? It just reminds you of the, the cries of um, the worship in the throne room scenes to God. Who is like God? Who is like God? Who can, who can stand against the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? It's, it's trying to create the kingdom of God, but it, with Satan behind it. It's such an obvious twist on the kingdom of God. And there's loads of elements I could pick out here and make this point. And maybe after this, after you've listened to this episode, have another read through it and just read it in that way. And you'll see how much of that is going on. And it's very obvious in the way that, that John's writing this down and the way he's using the language he's using. He's making that point. Satan um, is trying to deceive people and he does that by making a cheap imitation a twisted version of the trueness of the kingdom of God and as Jesus as saviour. I mean, you've even got what, what scholars call here the unholy trinity. You've got Satan and the two beasts. It's like Satan's even trying to, trying to copy the trinity of God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He's trying to do a similar thing here with these three authorities. They rule this kingdom and they demand worship from the people. Humanity was created to worship God and it's his kingdom that's going to come. 
but the enemy is trying to deceive people he's trying to pull people away from that in making his own copy this anti-kingdom imagery is all over this passage um that's kind of my first point that i wanted to make and like i said there's so much more i could say there have a read through and you will see it all over it but that's why verse 10 is so important where it says here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints because we're going to find ourselves however you interpret this whether you interpret this as a specific kingdom in the end times or whether you think this is just describing um the kind of the corrupt version of the world and satan's power behind the world from right from jesus's resurrection until now um or if you think this is a specific person whatever you think the point is christians we're gonna have to endure and we're gonna have to resist the way that the enemy is trying to deceive the world um by creating false kingdoms false versions of the kingdom of god false versions of jesus as savior and we need to hold true and fast to what we know is real to the real jesus holding out the hope of the real kingdom of god the second point i want to just focus on is the old testament context for this passage and there's kind of two main passages in the old testament that will be referred to here and that's daniel 7 which we'll look at in a minute and is perhaps the more obvious one but also job chapter 40 and 41 and in job 40 and 41 it tells us about leviathan and behemoth um i think i'm saying that right who's also called rahab um in in other places but they are the sea and the land chaos monsters of the old testament i'm reading from michael heiser's commentary on revelation right now which i'll link in the description and he goes into a load of depth on his podcast um about this passage um i'll link it again i feel like i always link michael heiser but his stuff is just so it's just so good it's just so helpful um and so leviathan and behemoth are like i just said sea and land chaos monsters so what does that mean well in kind of ancient creation myths often the creator of the world would have to fight chaos monsters to bring order and order was what kind of made the world good and so these chaos monsters represent evil and sin and kind of the opposite of god's creation in the same way we've been talking about it's like anti-creation it's we've been talking about anti-kingdom but this would be you know referring back to creation anti-creation is chaos there's there's good created order that god has made and then there's chaos and these monsters represent that chaos in the ancient world um and so the imagery in this passage is drawing on those monsters in the two beasts if if people read this and they're aware of that kind of background in the old testament they would have thought they would have made that connection of the two beasts with the chaos monsters i know that this is going against god's creation that point is just just drives home so much more um so and that's the significance of the beast coming out of the sea the sea is linked with the leviathan which is linked with chaos which is the opposite of god's good creation so go and listen to michael heiser's podcast if you want to do a deep dive into that specific detail but now i'm just going to read daniel 7 i'm going to read the interpretation of daniel 7 um his vision which is a beast with horns um it's very very clear that this passage is referencing that so i'm just going to read the interpretation because it will give us an idea of what some of the imagery in this passage 
means symbolically. I'm sure we've looked at this passage before on the podcast because this is one of the Old Testament passages that just is so important when interpreting the whole book of Revelations. I'm sure we've looked at it before so I'm just going to read the last bit. This is when the angel gives an interpretation for Daniel. Uh, Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. The four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth, and spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, sorry, the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. So, I think the important thing here is that when the first hearers of Revelation heard about this beast, they would immediately be reminded of Daniel 7. And the important theme in Daniel 7 is it's saying that these kingdoms are going to rise up, these kings, these rulers are going to rise up, but ultimately God is going to judge and it's going to be God's kingdom that will endure. That's the important thing. And that's the message we're seeing in Revelation 13 as well, isn't it? That's the underlying theme for all of this. But it also gives us a little bit of help in understanding some of the imagery. It says that the horns, for example, represent kings. And at this point, it will be easy to drift into interpretation. So I'm going to leave that. But it helps us understand some of the imagery. It's not new imagery, is my point. This is all completely rooted in the Old Testament. And even when we get to the mark of the beast later on, people being marked with the name of the beast, this is calling back to people being kind of marked for God, um, showing they really belong to God. And again, it's all just a twist. It's all just a twist on um, on God's way of doing things. People will be marked for the Lord and here they're being marked for the beast. The question is that we have to take away from this, where does our allegiance lie? Are our lives gonna be marked for Jesus or are they gonna be marked for Satan? because there is there isn't an in-between 
even the 666 here is another parody of number seven, which we see in the Old Testament and throughout Revelation represents perfection and is associated with God. And it's 666, it's like a short of sevens. It's, it's like the, the three numbers again, like the Trinity, I suppose, but like it's six instead of seven. It's not quite complete, it's, it's not there. Everything here is just a complete parody on Old Testament imagery and imagery of Jesus and imagery of the kingdom of God. I could go into a lot more detail on this and I'll link some things in the description if you want to do further study. But I think I've driven the point home enough at this point. So let's just end um, by looking at some of the cultural context of Revelation and how some of this imagery links into that Roman context that might help us out with our interpretation. So for this section, I'm just going to read you a few extracts from Craig Keener's IVP Bible background commentary, uh, which I'm always on about because it's really helpful. You kind of look up the verse and it gives you the cultural context around that verse. And it's just it's just great. So I'm going to read you some of that. And um, one of the main points he makes is that the first beast especially seems to be linked with the Emperor Nero, who was a Roman emperor. Um, and it's not to say that the beast is Nero. Some people do interpret it that way. Um, but definitely the beast has the same characteristics. The Emperor Nero was very strong on persecuting Christians. Um, Christians under Nero didn't have a great time. And so I think that's kind of the main point that's being made here. Because... It's a similarity that, that the original hearers would have heard, they would have associated this beast with Nero, and that would remind them of the severe persecution that Christians suffered in that time period. And it's the same thing that, that is happening here under the authority of the beasts and Satan, the same level of severe persecution where they really have to be strong and stand apart when everything else in the world is telling them to worship um, the beasts, or in the case of Nero, to worship the emperor to be part of the imperial cult of Rome. So let me read you one or two extracts from Krakina's commentary to kind of give you an idea of why this beast is associated with Nero. So he says, Although Nero died, reportedly by his own hand, on June the 9th, AD 68, rumour circulated that he was still alive and ready to take vengeance on the Roman aristocracy for rejecting him. According to the writers of the day, the majority of people in the eastern part of the empire expected his return. Several impostors arose, claiming to be Nero, hoping to gather followings in the eastern empire, where he was the most popular. And he goes on to say, Jewish oracles predicted the return of Nero and Christians feared it. Although John clearly does not believe in the literal return of Nero, he may use the image of this popular myth as many scholars think, to say, you thought Nero was bad, wait till you see this. The way today we would use the image of Hitler, Stalin or Pol Pot. This image is so shaped by the views of early Christians, thousands of whose numbers had been eradicated under Nero in Rome, that Nero even became a term for Antichrist in the Arminian language. Many later Christian writers, including Tertullian, Augustine and Jerome connected Nero with the Antichrist. So do you see how this, this thing with the wound, um, although it's also a parody of Jesus' wounds after his resurrection, as we've already said, 
would also remind people of this legend of Nero, this feared person who persecuted Christians, who the legend was that he would return from the dead. Um, this imagery is playing into that. And for, for the first readers, the ancient minds, they would pick up on that. Um, again as Craig Keener says it's not necessarily this is Nero but it's sort of <laughs> making that connection between that awful time that time like that is coming again um under Satan's kingdom persecution stay firm Christians another aspect that um makes us think that this is related to Nero is actually the number 666 so in the ancient world names didn't just um, have letters like you could spell names with letters but you could also spell them with numbers each letter kind of had numerical value would be associated with a number so you could write people's names in numbers I remember when I was studying this at, at college my lecturer showed me a picture of that some archaeologists had found of um, someone writing on a wall and they'd sort of written you know like someone write on a tree like they put someone's initials and then heart somebody else's initials it was a bit like that but it was the numbers they'd they'd written on the i think it was a wall but they'd engraved this in um this set of numbers hearts this set of numbers effectively just this kind of ancient graffiti semi-coded message in the same way the initials on there it's not immediately clear who it is same thing was going on that they used the numbers. Um, so this was a, a common practice. Let me read you Craig Keener on this section because he will explain it better than me. Counting a name or a word was an easy practice in Greek and Hebrew, which used letters as specific numbers. Later Jewish teachers often played with the numerical values of words. This form of calculation was known as gematria. In uh, many indigenous proposals have been made for the meaning of 666. Irenaeus, a second century Christian scholar, listed among the possibilities Latinos, Rome, he means Rome there, as the final kingdom. But the most popular proposal among scholars today is Nero Caesar. Although his name comes out to 1005 in Greek, which would have been um, obvious because a familiar wordplay on that number of his name had been circulated throughout the empire's graffiti. His name comes out to 666 if transliterated into Hebrew. If John intends an allusion to Nero here, either he expects his readers to know to switch to Hebrew letters, probably with the help of more skilled members of the congregation, or he and they already used 666 in this manner. So the point that's been made here is this kind of numerical version of Caesar, um, Caesar Nero's name was already being spread around in graffiti and stuff in the Greek version, and this would be the Hebrew version, which if John, as a someone that's, that's Jewish, Messianic Christian, is writing to other Messianic Christians, that would, that would make sense. That would make sense. Maybe they use that in the Hebrew letters. Maybe that's what this is referring to. Again, it's not necessarily saying it is Nero. It could be saying that. But at least the characteristics of these leaders that are empowered by Satan are very much like that of Nero. And in the same way, the ancient Christians had to resist the Roman imperial cult. Um, people here are having to resist the the mark and the the necessary worship of the beast so in the ancient roman empire people had to worship the emperor 
you really, really had to, to be part of society. Um, and also you used to buy and sell things, if we're looking at that part, everything, all the coins had his head on it. That reminds me actually, um, this part about Marx as well is really interesting in terms of another piece of Old Testament context about um, the thing about tattoos and Marx, because the tattoos and Marx were linked to kind of worshipping um, other gods or linked to people that did witchcraft and things. So those Marx, again, it's like the, the opposite to to God's way of living. Anyway, I just remembered that part. <laughs> the point is, there is so much in this passage. There's so much going on. There's loads of Old Testament context. There's loads of cultural context. I've touched on a few things, so I hope those things have been helpful to you. But if you want to learn more, I will link more in the description. But as you can see, it's so valuable just to be going into the text before we jump straight to interpretation and application. Because it there's really a lot in here that helps us out when we spend time with it. We're given a load of clues. Um, we just have to sit down and think, okay, what clues is John giving us here? Remi remembering that the key kind of um, indicators of his of his time and where he was, was and who he was speaking to are the Old Testament and the ancient context. So I hope that was helpful to you. I now need to go and feed my cat. I will see you next week. Thank you so much for joining me. so much for joining me for today's podcast if you have five minutes to leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on that would be really really helpful and it would help more people like us who might enjoy studying the bible to find the podcast and to join us in our journey if you'd like to support me in making this podcast financially you can use the buy me a coffee link that is in the show notes to just donate a little bit towards making these resources you can also follow me over on instagram at bible with megan or one word where i update everything that's going on and have content on there as well so i really look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the bible with megan podcast <laughs>